to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%, the September 23rd, 2023 show, you just heard Leonard Cohn's Democracy. KFGM 101.5 FM in French Town, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming on 101.5 KFGM.org, and available on podcast at capital A Anchor. Dot FM slash VOP dash Montana written out or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under quote Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. I'm Sue Kirchmeyer. I'm a retired RN and collective bargaining member. And Sandy Birch. Sandy, did you want to introduce yourself? There, yep. I'm Sandy Birch. I am a member of the Western Montana Democratic Socialists of America, and um, just happy to be here today. Oh, great, great. And our host, Mark Anderlich. Hi, everybody. Uh, <laughs> longtime union organizer and also a member of Western Montana DSA. Great. We broadcast from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana the homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. We are recording the show from the comfort of our homes, which also are located in the homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. And Sandy, and you're broadcasting. Yeah, and I am broadcasting from a, a new location for me. Uh, this is the homeland of the Absolute or Crow people and the Sesta or Cheyenne people. And you're in Billings. And I am in Billings. That's that's what uh, the white settlers call it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, our, our show, Voice of the People, seeks to give local, state, national, and international news and perspectives on that news that you rarely hear from the corporate news media. We cite our sources and try our best to follow good journalistic ethics. Our bias is to inform and educate the 99%, the working class in Montana, so we can build our power to establish political and economic democracy. And that said, we want to give old Mick, one of the founders of this show, a shout out to. Hey, Mick, hope you're doing well. Hi, Mick. (laughs) Well, we have a really good show today. And um, we hope to hear from Clayton, uh, an unhoused Missoula neighbor who is leading the fight against the cruel sweeps of the unhoused uh, of the unhoused conducted by the city of Missoula. We also will take a look at the current United Auto Workers strike, uh, how poverty is a crime against Montanans, and discuss if President Biden has a personal stake in keeping his proxy war in Ukraine going, despite the government of Ukraine badly losing that conflict. That's a whole lot more for your community radio dollar. I'll look forward to all that. And our word of the week this week is strike. This is a term we're all hearing more and more in the news today, Mark. Yes, we do, Sue. And from the screenwriters and actors to the University of California graduate students to the auto workers, workers have been striking all across the United States. So this is a chance to talk about 
what exactly is a strike? Are there like different kinds that you don't think about when you think of strike? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, a strike at its very essence is simply workers withholding their labor to gain leverage to get their demands met. That's it in a nutshell. Um, it is usually directed at an employer, such as the United Auto Workers, against the so-called big three corporations, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. But sometimes strikes are also aimed at political leaders and bodies, such as last November's Ontario-Canada teachers and public workers strikes opposing Bill 28, which made teachers' strikes illegal. And then they went out and striked. Uh, the public sector worker strike successfully got the Ontario Premier Doug Ford to back down and repeal Bill 28. Good job. And what about how strikes um, become so powerful? Yeah, it's it's pretty straightforward, Sue. The functioning of any business utterly depends on workers doing the work. And society as a whole depends on workers to even function, as the teachers in Ontario showed. Furthermore, under capitalism, there are zero profits for the capitalist when workers don't work. And, you know, they do like their profits. <laughs> yeah, so a lot happened during COVID that kind of woke me up to the power of, of just every worker out there. Mm -hmm. um, so, and so what's been, there's something called the Great Resignation. Yes. How we, does that fit in? Yeah. Well, we're we're going to get to that here pretty quick. Um, that's a great question, mm -hmm. and I would say that um, uh, that it, it was uh, when hundreds of thousands of workers decided not to go back to work after the COVID shutdowns, um, and I would consider that a strike. Um, after all, lots of employers are having a difficult time finding workers, and some have closed their doors because of it. In our working definition of strike, I think that the great resignation should count as such. Uh, it's unorthodox and not organized, but people got sick of crappy wages and even worse treatment. So they decided to retire early or go into other more dignified work uh, or try to change, you know, try, try to change what they did. The demands were not articulated well in the great resignation, but it was clearly made. Because it was not organized, its effects were, were limited, but it did create panic in the bosses and wages rose to a point until corporate-driven inflation more than erased those wage gains. Mm -hmm. So there are many forms then that a strike could actually take. Yeah, yeah that's right, Sue. Um, <clears throat> the slowdown, the quickie, the sit-down, the intermittent, the work to rule, the sick-in, the sympathy, the wildcat, the selective, the all-out, the political, and the general. Those are all forms of strikes. Mm -hmm. And and there mm -hmm. are uh, even more forms in which strikes can be conducted. Gene, Gene Sharp, which I think you're familiar with, Sue, um, in his essential work, The Politics of Nonviolent Action, lists many more forms of strikes. Uh, later in the show, we will look at the current United Auto Workers, or UAW, Strike is yet another strike form called the stand-up. Oh, okay, interesting. And so strikes, how long have they been going on for? Well, for a very long time. And uh, I'll just preface this. Um, as regular listeners know, we sometimes use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. 
Our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, has suggested that we include this note about Wikipedia. And that note is that each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. Uh, and furthermore, as reporters Ben Norton and Max Blumenthal wrote in a June 11, 2020 article in the Gray Zone, quote, Wikipedia has become a bulletin board for a corporate and imperial interests under the watch of its Ian Randian founder, Jimmy Wales, and the veteran U.S. regime change operative who heads the Wikimedia Foundation, Catherine Mayer, end quote. All that said, <laughs> according to Wikipedia, quote, the first historically certain account of strike action was toward the end of the 20th dynasty in Egypt under Pharaoh Ramesses III on November 14th. It's even that precise. November 14th, 1152 BCE. The artisans of the royal necropolis at Deir el-Medina walked off their jobs because they had not been paid. The Egyptian authorities raised the wages, end quote. Okay. Well, how about in the U.S.? When, when was the first strike in the U.S.? Yeah. That's impressive, though. I'm glad we did that. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it, so this is old stuff, right? Um, yeah, the, the according, again, according to Wikipedia, quote, the Jamestown Polish craftsman strike of 1619 took place in the settlement of Jamestown in the Virginia colony. It was the first documented strike in North America. Skilled craftsmen were sent by the Virginia company to Jamestown to produce pitch, tar, and turpentine used for shipbuilding. When the colony held its first election in 1619, many settlers were not allowed to vote on the grounds that they were not of English descent, and they went on strike. So the first strike is really more of a political strike, right? Um, yeah. 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 And Wikipedia continues, due to the importance of the skilled workers in producing valuable naval stores for the colony, company leaders bowed to labor pressure and gave full voting rights to continental workers, end quote. Well, that's heartening. Yeah. So we seem to be in kind of a building strike wave right now with the Writers Guild of America, the Screen Actors Guild, the University of California graduate students last winter, Starbucks workers, UAW strike now. So among, among many other smaller strikes, um, have we seen strike waves in the past in the U.S.? Oh, yes, uh, several times. Um, the eminent Polish-German so socialist Rosa Luxemburg called these times a mass strike when there's a lot of strikes going on. And she describes it, uh, well, she writes in her work, The Mass Strike, The Political Party, and The Trade Unions. Um, she wrote The Mass Strike, uh, uh, and she wrote this before World War One, so it, it, it's a hundred years old. Uh, signifies the mass strike signifies not just a single act, but a whole period of class struggle. She continues, "quote Its use, its effects, its reasons for coming about are in a constant state of flux. Political and economic strikes, united and partial strikes, defensive strikes and combat strikes, general strikes of individual sections of industry." and general strikes of entire cities, peaceful wage strikes and street battles, uprisings with barricades, they all run together and run alongside each other, get in each other's way, overlap each other. 
a perpetually moving and changing sea of phenomena, end quote. So, Mm -hmm. and according to Jeremy Brecher in his important book, Strike, the first mass strike in the U.S. was the Great Upheaval of 1877. It started as a railroad strike in Martinsburg, West Virginia, and spread throughout the country in the form of several general strikes in a dozen major cities, and strikers took over authority in communities across the nation. Um, and Brecher also considers the May Day strikes of 1886, the, the famous uh, Haymarket uh, movement and the movement for the eight hour workday. And that's that's the May Day strikes of 1886. The the strikes of 1892 to 19 or 1894, culminating in the Pullman strike uh, with. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, anyway, uh the strikes uh, of 1919 during World War I, the strikes of the 1930s, which created the current union structures we see today, the massive strike wave during World War II, uh, which led to the reactionary backlash of the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, and the smaller wave of strikes during the Vietnam War era, which itself in part led to the establishment of the neoliberal form of capitalism in the United States. All of these became challenges to the status quo and are considered to be mass strikes. Mm-hmm. You know, I, my education is so lacking. Yeah, it's amazing to think of all that power being exhibited. So what are we in now? Are are we in like a mass strike or maybe a little mass strike or maybe... Well, I, I, I kind of think we, we may be at the very beginning. I don't think we're in one now, um, but uh, but I think the the tenor and the tone of of uh, the people of workers in this country are definitely pissed off. And, uh, you know, support for the UAW strike, for instance, is very high and. Um, I don't think we're there yet, but it, it, it has the potential to become so, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, by the way, I just picked up, I was in um, the bookstore yesterday and picked up Bernie Sanders. I think it's his most recent book. Um, it's okay to be angry at capitalism. <laughs> what a funny title, you know, but um, we're starting to read it to each other now. It's um it, it, I think people are, have to get the word. It's just, yeah. Anyhow, so uh, what do we have on today for current news then, Mark? Well, um, naturally, it's the United Auto Workers strike. Um, according oh, to the yeah, yeah, um, and which is which is going on right now, and there's some new news to to give. But um, you know, people will. I mean, we have to remind people what. Um, the strike is immediately about. Um, I, I would say I'm really heartened to hear President uh, Sean Fain of the UAW talk, you know, talk about uh, the working class. I mean, he doesn't say the middle class. He doesn't say just, you know, UAW mm-hmm. workers. He's talking about the working class and that this strike is really about uh, inspiring the rest of the working class in this country. Um, but there are specifics that go into into the bargaining process. They have specific demands. And um, 
So according to the UAW website, uh, President Sean, quote, President Sean Fain met with UAW members on Facebook Live. Uh, this was several weeks ago and laid out the members demands in big three bargaining. UAW members are thinking big and the big three can afford it. Ford, General Motors and Stellantis made a combined 21 billion. That's with a B. $21 billion in profits in just the first six months of this year, 2023. That's on top of the quarter trillion dollars in North American profits that the big three made over the last decade. Fain said, record profits mean record contracts, <laughs> which that's it makes a lot of sense. Uh, in past negotiations, the UAW's core contract demands have been called the president's demands, and the union's president often delivered them to the company behind closed doors without even our elected national negotiators present. This year, President Fain shared them directly with UAW members on Facebook Live. And here, here are some of the principal demands. Uh, eliminate tears. This is something we saw with the Teamsters and the uh, UPS drivers, right? That they that uh, weak <laughs> weak union leadership had allowed the company to um, to uh, pay new workers uh, less money and less benefits, um, and which causes big divisions within the union, uh, obviously. So um, anyway, he says, eliminate tears. It's wrong to make any worker second class. We can't allow it any longer in the UAW. The Teamsters ended tears at UPS. We're going to end tears at the big three. Uh, number two, mm -hmm. Substantial wage increases. He goes, yes, we're demanding double-digit pay raises. The big three CEOs saw their pay spike 40% on average over the last four years. We know our members are worth the same and more. And that's why they opened up with 40% wage increase over the life of the contract. So they're mirroring what mm -hmm. the CEOs are getting, right? And the CEOs yeah. are saying, oh, workers can't get that, right? Um, uh, yeah. And so number three is re restoring the cost of living adjustments that made sure working class communities thrive for decades. Taking that away hammered us in our hometowns. It must be restored. So it basically it makes inflation uh, a moot point, which is really a big deal now. Like I had said earlier in, in this, that during the Great Resignation, uh, workers held out and wages actually did go up because workers were going, thanks, but no thanks. And But all of those wage increases have been effectively uh, erased because of mostly uh, corporate, um, the corporations and raising inflation. prices because they can, right? And so yeah. inflation. Yeah. So, monopolies. So, yes, monopolies are able to do that. So you know, cost of living adjustments uh, take that uh, inflation threat away. Um, they also, number four, they they want defined benefit pension for all workers, which is disappearing fast. Um, not 401ks. Uh, I'll say this. 401ks are a joke. Um, but defined pension benefits means you can count on getting a certain amount of money uh, in your retirement. Um, number five, mm -hmm reestablish retiree medical benefits, which were cut off. Uh, mm -hmm. Number six, right to strike over plant closures. Um, 
he makes a comment. The big three have closed 65 plants over the last 20 years. That's been as devastating for our hometowns as it has been for us. We have to have the right to defend our communities from the corporate greed that's killing so many cities and towns. Hence the Rust Belt. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, right. Uh, number seven, Working Family Protection Program. It's a program that keeps UAW members on the job. If companies try to flee our hometowns, they'll have to pay UAW members to do community service work. Companies can still make a healthy profit, and it'll keep our communities healthy too. Um, and this sort of harkens to the uh, 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 bargaining for all uh, idea, right? That um, right. We saw, mm -hmm. Yeah, we saw with the Los Angeles teachers and the Oakland teachers, Chicago teachers, where they'd only they not only bargain for themselves, but they bargain for their communities. And you see, you know, right. this you see this in the UEW uh, demands as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the uh, go ahead. I'm just curious. Yeah, because one of the things that I've heard about with the UAW um, issues is the, you know, moving to, um, oh, whatever the word is for um, electric vehicles. Um, yes. And okay. yeah, is that, do you think that this, because I'm not seeing something specifically in here about, because I think it's something like, you know, a new, an electric vehicle requires like 40% less parts. Um than a than a traditional vehicle and so that's i'm curious and so yeah and the and of course the the big three are already um hiring out outside contractors to make these electrical vehicles so they're shortcutting you know their workers um and i'm curious if that if these two demands are kind of addressing those concerns y yes and that, in part that's absolutely true um it will electric vehicles take less workers to make and so what they're trying to do is make sure that those workers are still union um, at the same time as protecting the communities, right? Because e even, um, you know, one of the, one of the principles of, of trying to deal with climate disaster should be that the burden should not just fall on workers, right? Um, and we've talked about this on this show before too, like, uh, the power plants at Coal Strip, right? They they should be shut down, but they also uh, the the workers who work there and people who live in Coal Strip, Montana, should not have to pay. Uh, you know, they should be supported in um, any sort of transition, and and frankly, I think they should just be guaranteed. Uh, uh, you know, their salary and and their pension. For the rest of their lives and with no i mean this is my opinion but with no no other requirement for them to go back to work right that just just buy them out and um you will see that resistance you know disappear a lot more and i think that it's fair to say that the workers at coal strip um uh while you know they may not argue about climate change they are they they look back at the history of this country and and when tech technology there's you know of necessity technological changes, workers have always borne the brunt of those changes and um, and it's time to stop that pattern right and and especially with climate change it's like the federal government should just guarantee the the salary and pensions of of all these folks 
and I think too, you know, I, I'm not too into the details of the UAW strategy here, but I think that's that's what they're looking at too. Is um, you know, the workers that lose their jobs because of transition electric vehicle manufacturers should not have uh, to pay the price of unemployment and poverty in order to uh, uh, create a livable world. So. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it, it just seems like, I mean, there's the whole thing of boom and bust that um, where how you do your, develop your, your model of how you're working, how you're developing things <laughs> is let's get it as fast as we can and then take off to another field and make, you know, leave that one behind destroyed whether it's a forest or a community or a minefield I mean, they they just want to just keep moving and not be responsible for the impact of it overall just, they, they're just throwing the responsibilities into the air and on our backs yep and not bearing yeah. the full price of what they've done right right I, absolutely I, well and i I think that when we think of ourselves as like a working class that is deployed, as it is now, we're deployed by the billionaires to make them massive amounts of money. And that's what the history of our state is, you know, extractive industry, mining, lumber, um, all of that. And now we're what we're experiencing is we're shifting over to different kinds of extraction. So real estate is being extracted from us, you know, tour services, mm -hmm. tourism. Um, and I think, like you said, Mark, yeah, the workers always bear the brunt of that uh, tech, that that technological change. But also what it is, is it's like the billionaires switching over from like, well, I made a lot of money mining, but now I think I'm going to make a lot of money in real estate. <laughs> and uh, and we're getting screwed over really either way. And so that's what's so cool about um, all of this um, labor and strike activity. Right. Is it's like this is our only way to demand um, yeah, to demand what we deserve really from these billionaires as they yeah. like and it's, play around. It's a whole different, industry. it's a whole different, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's a whole different way of looking at it. You know, it's like a whole, it's a whole, it's a paradigm shift to think that we're, we're here for the long run. We're not going anywhere. I mean, if you can learn from indigenous people, it's your place. This is, you can't just, mess it over, mess the people here, and then move on. Yeah, We need, we deserve, and should be getting the benefits of living here and taking care of this land and not just thrown away. And, and I think the paradigm shift it, might explain it this way, is we need to stop thinking in terms of what's good for the oligarchs, right? The billionaire class, the corporations, right? Because, um, and you'll you'll see this on social media all the time, like on the UAW strike, for instance, but in other things too, where people will, you know, average working class people will make the arguments for the billionaire class saying, well, oh, that's just going to increase the price of automobiles, right? When they go on strike. Well, it turns out the price of labor in an automobile is about 5%, right? So- this ain't this ain't and you know and there's uh you know uh we have to stop thinking 
in terms of the billionaire class and their profits. And we have to start thinking about what's good for the earth, what's good for each other, what's good for our communities. And that means a paradigm shift, I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. and okay. yeah, exactly. We also need to be thinking about how much the the other paradigm shift is like how much money is on the table because when the you know it sounds crazy to be like well we could close coal strip and just pay everybody for the rest of their lives and it would be fine and i think that because so many of us exist in scarcity because we're forced to um it's really hard for us to conceive of how much money a billion dollars is <laughs> and and just like how many billions of dollars these people have and they should not have that and that should be you know that is owed to us for our labor and and you know everything that we've done but or made been made to do um so yeah i think that's a real shift too because because people are like oh you know i people are inherently kind of like good you know and they see even though they see these billionaires they see another human you know and they're like well i don't want to take too much from this person or they seem to have succeeded i don't want to be that mean to them and it's like let's just wrap our heads around the magnitude of how mean these people are to us you know like how much money they are withholding <laughs> from us yeah and and that they took from us i mean the the economic the siphoning off of our monies and our, um, you know, the work that our people have done for years, well, generations, and it's just been sucked up and taken off. And um, it's not their money. You know, I mean, if you look at the 2008, what went on in real estate, which I've been trying to understand more, and if you take just the, in COVID, how much the billionaires bought i was just as i said reading reminded by bernie's book i mean it's it's well it's highway robbery and um you know and yet we're like well it's private enterprise it's like well no i'm afraid not it's it's a rigged system and thank you you know if you cheat at a game you shouldn't be able to keep the money you're cheating at this game so and i think Anyhow. that i think that resonates with a lot of people Right. I, I, I think, you know, I, I don't I think there's very few people um, that I come across and I talk to all sorts of people. I don't sort of limit myself to people that think like myself um, and they're they're go they would agree completely up to this point. Right. Go, yeah, we're being ripped off. And uh, and yeah, it is uh, profits come from unpaid wages. <laughs> basically i mean that's that's what that yeah. is and you know this has been known for a long time this is not anything new but we've been conditioned to think that that's you know uh that, that that's bad to think that way right that our whole system depends upon these guys getting fabulously wealthy and and that capitalism is is wonderfully creative i i saw a meme uh the other day on facebook um i, I don't usually like memes, but this one was pretty good. It showed the um, the creativity of capitalism, and then it had a picture of twenty five different bottles of bottled water, different brands of bottled water. And it's like, yeah, that's that sums it up. It's the the creativity in capitalism has has is gone. I mean, now it's just perpetuating the system, which means the wealthier get wealthier, and the the rest of us, you know. Take, take the hindmost. And 
I'm understanding too that the UAW is conducting this strike using some new methods, right? Well, sort of new. Um, I mean, new for the UAW for sure. Um, as we said earlier, uh -huh. the the UAW is engaging in what they call a stand-up strike. Um, and this is from the UAW website that kind of explains it. Um, quote, the stand-up strike is our gener is our generation's answer to the movement that built our union, the sit-down strikes of 1937. Then, as now, we face massive inequality across our country. Uh, then, as now, our industry is rapidly changing and workers are being left behind. Then, as now, our labor movement is redefining itself. And not a moment too soon. <laughs> this is, uh, Fain continues, this is a strike that grows over time, giving our national negotiators maximum leverage and maximum flexibility to win a record contract. The stand-up strike is a new approach to striking. Instead of striking all plants all at once, select locals will be called on to stand up and walk out on strike. As time goes on, more locals may be called on to stand up and join the strike. This gives us maximum leverage and maximum flexibility in our fight to win a fair contract at each of the big three automakers. Hmm. And so has it already started? How is it working? Yeah, it's already started. Um, and it seems to be working very well, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, here's a story from The Intercept on uh, September 19th. Quote, as the United Auto Workers kept the big three automakers guessing about the union strike plans, the car manufacturers made a failed effort to head off the effects of the unprecedented labor action. Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, which used to be known as Chrysler for us old fogies, um, stalled production and moved parts out of plants across the country, according to the rank-and-file workers, self-inflicting financial damage that could have been avoided by meeting workers' demands. In the weeks leading up to the strike, a cat-and-mouse game between the UAW and the companies unfolded, a version of guerrilla warfare between the parties. Through targeted walk-offs, the union aimed to disrupt the company's operations with the fewest possible workers, which would allow the union strike fund to last longer into the conflict, essentially, essentially forcing the companies to pay workers even during the strike period. Now, that's not insignificant, right? Um, the companies, meanwhile, sought to anticipate precisely which plants would be struck and reorganize production and distribution to minimize losses. Uh, the big three guessed badly. Uh, Brandon Mansilla, a director for the UAW's Region 9A, which spans New England and the Northeast, told The Intercept that the auto manufacturers are creating more problems for themselves than they would have faced had they come to an agreement with the union before the contracts for its 150,000 workers expired last week. Uh, Mansilla said, quote, instead of bargaining in good faith and understanding our demands and meeting us at the table, these companies are conducting strikes on themselves, end quote. <laughs> um, I, I I think this is hilarious, right? And and it 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 shows that you you get a a smart and strong labor leadership can make a big difference in in how unions approach strikes. Um, 
the UAW, so a little more detail about this uh, story. The UAW did not, uh, again, this is from The Intercept. The UAW did not announce the plants where it intended to hold work stoppages until just before the strike deadline last Thursday night. The targeted facilities, GM's Wentzville Assembly Center outside of St. Louis, Stellantis's Toledo Assembly Complex in Ohio, and two divisions of Ford's Michigan plant, were not among those that workers reported companies making preparations at. So far, some 13,000 workers are on the picket line out of 150,000. Um, so that's less than 10% of the workers are on strike, uh, uh, at least in the last week. Um, and it, it is affecting the production of classic American cars like the Jeep Wrangler and the Ford Bronco, with more to follow if the union's contract negotiations are not conducted by week's end. And so this article continues. Huh. Now, here's, here's more details about how the UAW is outsmarting the car companies. Um, Scott Huldeson, a worker at the Ford assembly plant in Chicago, told The Intercept that company bosses seemed to have no idea where planned strikes were going to take place. Uh, he said, our local plant management started emptying out vehicles from paint ovens and dip tanks. If they leave cars in there, they get ruined, so they start emptying those out and preparing to shut the ovens down. So that's what was happening here, because they thought that our plant was going to be the one that was called out, Huldeson said. Uh, the, quote, he continues, the plant chairman was telling me that ours was the one they were going to strike, end quote. Huldeson said that other automakers had transferred parts from plants elsewhere in the country, including one in Tennessee. Uh, he said at GM in Spring Hill, Tennessee, they loaded engines to send to Wentzville, Missouri, because they thought Spring Hill would be the target. Turns out Wentzville was where they struck. So there was a lot of disinformation out there that really put the company on their heels, he added. In other words, the company had moved product from a plant that was not striking to one that did. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the end of this article said uh, in The Intercept said, uh, Fain has threatened the companies with even greater disruption should they fail to meet workers where they stand. He said, we're going to keep hitting the company where we need to, when we need to, and we're not going to keep waiting around forever while they drag this out, Fain said on Monday. I have been clear with the big three every step of the way, and I'm going to be crystal clear again right now. If we don't make serious progress by noon on Friday, September 22nd, uh, more locals will be called on to stand up and join the strike. End quote. Ooh, that's today. Well, yesterday, yes. Well, I... What do you think? Go ahead. Go ahead, Sandy. Oh, I agree with you, Mark. This is wonderfully hilarious. Um, and I, the thing that this makes me think is it's all a learning process. I think about this with electoral politics because... Um, we don't we don't we think of politicians when they get elected as like knowing what they're doing but really a lot especially at the local level um they're just learning and even at the legislature you know a bill is like an idea um and i think that and 
and and we learn what is possible through watching others who have jumped into the political ring put out ideas uh you know put together a coalition make progress and i think that that's true for all of this awesome uh, for labor organizing as well, right? Because like ultimately we're we're primates. We're it's like a monkey see, monkey do kind of situation uh, in in both labor and electoral stuff. Um, and it's just so cool to see the UAW and Sean Fain just being aggressive and like showing us what a smart fight looks like, and and just like how 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 well you can. Um, fight this nonviolent battle basically yeah. and uh, and I'm really I'm really impressed um and it's really cool to see so you know so that's which is part of how that's how the movement grows as a whole is now other workers other unions um will see that and and that informs that that knowledge of how to do that is now in the movement basically yeah and, and I, I wonder too you know, when they have a pointed, you know, the point of the spear there, like, so next it's going to be the um, 38 parts distribution centers for Stellantis mm-hmm. and General Motors, um, I, I noticed. And um, so that's, then you could, at that place, you could be concentrating your own efforts as far as having it be totally strike ready. And when other people then, like you're saying, that really struck me what you said, Sandy, that then other people see what it means when there is a place that does bring the company to a halt with just, you know, how many thousand or whatever, you know, okay, 98% of us or 95% or 85% of us went out, maybe all, um, and they see what that does, and then they're going to be called on to do it. I would think that that's really, um, that must, like you were saying, when you see someone else can do it. And plus, you know that then that's also stretching out the money and the support for the ones who do go. Um, yeah, that's a really pretty picture to me, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree with both of you more on, on this, that um, I was taught, um, or I was told, I should say, <laughs> um, I didn't quite learn this lesson, but... Um, I, I was told that you know things like the strike and the working class those were those those were obsolete you know that that mm. today today it's all about getting along with the employer and trying to schmooze up to the employer and work things out and um and and I think that's fine actually in the most part but there does come a time when the schmoozing uh, which is what the UAW leadership, the, the, the now unelected leadership, and most of which are heading to prison if they're not already in prison because of blatant Ooh. corruption, um, and, uh, and that, uh, uh, you know, they, they totally employed that, that idea that, you know, th- this was just about managers managing relations between workers and the corporation, right? And it's not in in that they would put more stock in electing Democrats to save labor's bacon, basically, right? That's that is the current strategy of most of the business unions today, and that came directly out of the pushback in 1947 with the Taft Hartley Act. I, I we've talked about that on the show before. Um, that was a complete reaction. Uh, by 
Republicans, but also a lot of Democrats um, against the sort of uh, workers getting too powerful in during World War II. Um, and by the way, during World War II, there were more strikes than than at any time in U.S. history, even though there was a war going on, right? Which mm-hmm. is is really mm-hmm. instructive. And the quickie strike was was the main. You know, workers would just uh, would just walk out. Uh, you know, for a couple of hours and then go back in, right? And to to meet a demand, a particular demand of the situation, because workers felt very empowered. Um, coming out of the organizing out of the 1930s, well, um, mm-hmm. you know the uh, the uh, uh, you know the the ruling class in this country saw that as a direct threat, and they're right that is a direct threat, um, and so they passed Taft Hartley, which really uh, created what's what we know today as the business union, and it's not insignificant that it was Walter Ruther who actually grew the United Auto Workers um, in by doing um, CIO style of organizing. We've talked about that before on the show too, uh, which really empowers each individual union member to, to be an organizer, to be, you know, to, to have a voice, right. In not only in the plant, but also in the union. Um, uh, Ruther uh, who's lauded today, you know, as someone who was really good on civil rights and really good on, you know, in working with community groups, which he actually did a really good job with that. But internally, his administrative caucus, which later ended up being uh, voted out just recently and was very corrupt, ended up in corruption, massive corruption. Um, it's it's really embarrassing to talk about, but um, that... Uh, he responded to Taft Hartley by creating basically what's known as the business union. And he kind of set the model. And so historically, this UAW change of leadership with Sean Fain and others elected into office by one member, one vote, by the way, that's how they got it done. Um, Instead of having the members vote for delegates and then the delegates vote for the leadership, um, one mm-hmm. one member, one vote was a, a big thing in the Teamsters as well. That's what created the change in the Teamsters. Um, but mm-hmm. historically, this couldn't be a more promising way to go in terms of the history of the labor movement that, you know, maybe we could look back at this time and see how uh, the UAW especially um, but the Teamsters as well um, really is leading the way, showing the example of how uh, the strike can be a very important tool. It has you can't be a union if you're not ready to go on strike. That's my take. And when I was told, no, strikes are, you know, they're mostly illegal, even if they're illegal, right? I mean, it's like um what you know the west virginia teacher and there's been others that said this too there's no such thing as an illegal strike only an unsuccessful strike and you know our business union leaders uh if you're listening um need to uh understand the example that the UAW is setting right now and um and understand the profound uh, change in how unions operate that th- this is portending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And right. one, uh, oh. I want to, oh, sorry, Sue. 
No. Uh-uh. Go ahead. Um, thanks. Um, one thing that I wanted to interject is that it seems to me like Taft-Hartley is a um, point in favor of, because I know a lot of, it's, to me, there's a tension between labor organizing and what I call electoral organizing. So like um, politics, basically who you elect and what they're, what, what kind of policy they're making. Um, and I feel like that's an excellent story about the importance of both labor and electoral work, right? Because it sounds to me like World War II, labor was strong, lots of strikes, and then in retaliation, uh, the 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 powers that be utilized the electoral side of things and changed the policy to deeply cut into the power of labor at the time. Would you say that's accurate? Absolutely, yeah. Right. And so and and so that kind of ties back to the point that I wanted to make, which is that community, you know, for folks who are listening who are not UAW workers or who don't necessarily know anybody, it's still worth reaching out, you know, figuring out how to support the UAW UAW now, you know, like I'm sure they have a solidarity fund that you can donate to. Um and that's something that we learned recently with the with the UPS um, uh, contract negotiations and DSA did a lot of work generating community support um, for that effort because that that's another thing that they have that that uh, has been intentionally um, severed is that relationship between unions and their communities and uh, their networks of support, which is basically what electoral politics is about. Um, and so I just that's that's always a good thing to just remind listeners that like you you matter even if you don't work um, for for one of these uh, manufacturers, you can still support this um the movement as a whole by <laughs> figuring out how to support workers in your community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for the unions to have those ties in the community is really important too, as you're saying. It's going to be a two-way street. Um, right. Otherwise, there can't be a manipulation of policy and so forth against unionizing. So. Yeah, and and that's so the support for. Oh, go ahead, Sue. No, I'm done. Oh, I, I was going to say that that the, the that building connections with the community is what the bargaining for the common good idea is all about, right? And it's also it also can do an end round around local politics if they're not. I, I know, like in Los Angeles, um, for instance, and probably LA is is kind of like the, the the most militant union city in America right now um, with, you know, multiple strikes. Kaiser Permanente healthcare workers have authorized a strike. So we may be seeing, you know, healthcare workers in, in LA. I know uh, mm -hmm. hotel workers were out on strike, um, striking all mm -hmm. the hotels uh, you, with Unite here mm -hmm. in LA. Um, but the uh, LA teachers kind of really helped pioneer this idea uh, back in 2019 about bargaining for the common good, that instead of just bargaining for their members, they're also bargaining for the for their communities and uh, in things that are, are, are deficient, right? Because the politics is not 
you know, is not operating as it should, meeting the needs of people, uh, that uh, you can accomplish some of that, at least set a good example by uh, uh, and, and getting public support by also bargaining things that people can't get on their own, right, through their elected representatives. All right I, there. Okay. I, I remember the. I remember that so clearly because they were able to bargain for the uh, L.A. Teachers Union was able to bargain for an end to uh, racist policing within their schools, and they also bargained for more uh, green spaces. And there was something else too, but yeah, that really stuck with me that the way that the union and the community can have a symbiotic relationship. In fact, mm-hmm. I, th- I think mm-hmm. it's e- I think it's essential um, because otherwise, then you know you've heard the uh, you, you I mean uh, we've we've all heard um, people saying, well, you know th- these guys are making too much money; they're just bargaining for themselves. What about the rest of us? You know that kind of thing. Um, and you know, even if they didn't bargain for the common good, I mean that that in itself is unfair because. Uh, uh, the community benefits when workers are making living wages plus, right, uh, and more, and are stable, have stable jobs, have health care, have, you know, are, are, are pillars of the community, right, economic pillars in their community. Th- that is shared, you know, indirectly by everybody, too. So, but making those more direct connections about uh, you know, specific things that you can bargain for is really uh, incredibly important. And um, I think it can lead to more creative kinds of things, right? Where, um, you know, it, it could be where, uh, uh, you know, communities get to uh, uh, say something like this. Well, uh, and, and we were thinking about this with the unhoused neighbors union here in Missoula to uh, say, well, you know, what if, um, what if the unhoused were, uh, you know, where other people kind of came to their aid, right. And said, well, we're not, we're not going to be, um, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're going to make a disruption in the city council, right. For instance, until, you get until you deal with this problem, right? And that, you know, the unhoused could be organized to the point where they, you know, maybe camp out on the courthouse lawn and be very visible. Instead of of being less visible, be more visible and say, you know, in in conjunction with other things, right? But say, look, this is a human rights crisis right now. This, you know, the Missoula City Council, and I'll say it that directly, is committing human rights violations every time they do one of these sweeps or refuse to deal with the issue. And of course, the issue, you know, before we get too far on that, but uh, the the issue is bigger, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, again, it's uh, the, the same kind of economic system we're all uh, suffering from uh, is is kind of the cause of that. But, you know, you can get you can get to changing the system by by doing some of these things in the concrete, uh, uh, you know, more narrowly focused, but but more visionary, outward expanding 
kinds of things, which it seems like, you know, the, the leadership of the UAW is, is completely aware of what they're doing. And I'll, I'll say this too, that um, one of the other things that uh, uh, was, uh, you know, an example that the UAW is setting is in the, like, like demanding wage increases, right? So instead of saying, okay, well, inflation this year was, you know, 6%. And so we'll get 6% plus a little, they went, they, they took a look at the CEOs and say, well, how much increase did the CEOs of these big three get? And it was around 40% each of them uh, making millions of dollars a year, just one person, right? Um, say, well, if, if these wages, if those raises are good enough for them, why not for the workers who actually are doing something, are actually making something? And uh, and that kind of bold thinking and paradigm shift, right? Not not doing the same old damn thing again, right? Which is, you know, what unions often do. Uh, thinking outside of the box and being bold about that, I I think it's totally refreshing. Yeah, and those ties to the community, I think, will be important, I would think, for the union of the houseless. I can't remember exactly if I said that right. Un unhoused um, Neighbors Union. <laughs> unhoused, yeah, that's really a nice name. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that whatever they decide to do can will have the support of the community and not be seen as being totally radical, meaning not that that's not good, but to bring it into their understanding better too. I mean, it's a lot of education that could go on. It sounds right. a lot like <laughs> Occupy, since you're going for the might go for the exactly. courthouse lawn, which, yeah, which is already occupied based by some of the unhoused. Neighbors. Right, right. But um, not, yeah, not in an obvious sort of way, in in a in a in a sort of challenge to the status quo. I mean, there's a lot of lessons yeah, to be learned here from not and not just. It, it, my point really being is that there's a lot of lessons to be learned in all kinds of sectors of mm -hmm. of our society um, who are being right, yeah. treated wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Show us how to do this. I guess I was going to say too that. I mean, when you think of, say, somewhere like France, where everybody comes out when they try to um, make dents or whatever, you know what I'm saying, to the, decrease the, the, the benefits. The pension reform. Out, the yeah. pension but, I mean, everybody was out. And I think in this country, too, that when we were concerned, well, which we should be still, about a coup and that for people to have tools to deal with that risk, to, um, to know that um, there's power that says that we're not going to let things fall on the side of authoritarianism. So, the more solidarity we have and that we've seen for each other, the better. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, anyhow. But, yeah. So, did, did you want to move Absolutely. on to the, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think there's more current news, too. Did you want to go into that yet, Mark? Well, Sandy had something to add here, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Sandy. Oh, to wrap up what we were just talking about? 
Well, either that or you had another topic you wanted to talk about too. So are we ready to go in into that? I think so. All right. <laughs> Slight uh change of topic, maybe a good opportunity for a musical interlude if uh that's an option. <laughs> um but uh yeah, well I will today I wanted to talk about uh poverty, uh which is related to what we've been talking about. Um, and in particular, I have been, a phrase has been in my brain a lot lately, uh, which is poverty is a crime against Montanans. Um, it's a crime against everybody anywhere that it happens. Um, but I think a lot about Montana um, and do a lot of organizing here. And so I just wanted to make it relevant for everybody. Um, a few months ago, I was, uh, on a, on a road trip and I stopped at a grocery store in Polson, uh, to use the bathroom and, um, somebody in the stall next to me was overdosing. Um, and I did not know that I could kind of tell there was something weird going on, but I couldn't, I didn't know until I got to the front and the cashier came up kind of in a panic and said, oh, my gosh, I just had to call the ambulance because somebody's overdosing in the bathroom, um, which is a good reminder to carry Narcan, uh, which is basically like an EpiPen, but for overdoses. Um, and I after this experience, I'm definitely planning on doing that um, and I still need to get a hold of some. So this is my reminder. But um, the and then, of course, I went outside, sat in my car to process that whole experience. And across the road, um, a rafting trip or some sort of water trip bus pulled up and all of these tourists came pouring out of the bus. And I watched them and thought, you know, they have no idea that there's this person that I don't know if this person's alive or dead. I don't know what happened to them. Um, but obviously, I I I bring that up because I think that those sort of those experiences, those issues that we have uh, in our communities are the result of poverty. Um, and and another conversation, a conversation I had earlier this year um, with a new friend, um, she was telling me about a friend of hers who was driving her boyfriend to work one day and um he overdosed just on the way to work and luckily they were able to save him and he survived um but so this person i was talking to i said wow that's a crazy story um what's the solution you know like what do you think is the solution here and their response was simple take people out of poverty um and i think that that's so many of the issues that we face in Montana, Montana is a very poor state relative to the rest of the nation. Um, and we also have really high rates of suicide, alcoholism, um, alcohol related vehicle accidents. We have, you know, all of these mental health issues. Um, like I said, I'm in Billings right now. Um, and I've just learned that, uh, crime is on the rise in Billings. And unfortunately, a mat, like a massive amount, like 60% of that is, uh, domestic violence. And, um, you know, we, I think it's, it's not a, it, you know, it's not that hard to understand that domestic violence, uh, increases as financial stress, um, increases on a community as well. Um, so I just think that it's really important. A lot of 
a lot of times when people look at these symptoms of poverty, they don't see them as symptoms of poverty. We have a framework that views everybody as being, you know, individually responsible for themselves and their life choices and all that stuff. Um, but once you start to see how all of these issues are linked um, to poverty, it, it's again, it's another paradigm shift. Um, and the so to, to kind of take a step back, um, I read a re an article recently that referenced Montana as a resource extraction colony, um, which I thought was a really really helpful framework, especially if you are the descendant of white settlers living here in Montana. Um, I think it makes it makes everything make a lot more sense to remember why we are here and that we, literally we are here because the U.S. empire wanted to take over this land and extract uh, as much value and resources from it as um, as it could. And, and that's is still what's happening. Um, and so all of these problems we face in our in our own lives, whether it's just like basics, like accessing health care um, is uh, that that part of the reason it's so hard to do that is because really we're just put here to be um, worker bees in this little settler colony. And we're just supposed to be going to work every day, extracting whatever we're extracting and making a bunch of money for the billionaires. Um, and to that end, uh, because I've been in Billings, I have also been waiting for the train a lot because there's a lot of train traffic. Um, and I remember when the, um, uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure that, am I right in this, that Warren Buffett makes a lot of money from train commerce? Does he own a lot? He, of he owns uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe. Okay. He owns Burlington Northern. Okay, cool. Yeah. So here I am sitting there waiting for the train. Uh, um, and I'm thinking this is like Warren Buffett's toy train going by um, and what's inside it, but all of this, these fossil fuel products. And then, so meanwhile, another thing I've been learning about is that um, there's all of these cases, there's dozens of lawsuits against big oil right now across the country. If you want to know more, I'd recommend going to um, the Center for Climate Integrity. Uh, they have a great website. Um, and so one of these cases is actually uh, the city of Honolulu is suing ExxonMobil um, and other big oil companies under state tort law uh, for misrepresenting their product because the because big oil did all of this research uh, 40 to maybe even 60 years ago. So I'm just let that sink in because this was news to me. Maybe everybody who's listening knows this, but as far back as, you know, uh, 50 to 60 years ago, big oil uh, knew that climate catastrophe was unavoidable if we continued burning fossil fuels at the rate that they wanted us to. Um, and, they, and their papers even said something to the effect of civilization itself will prove tenuous if we, if we continue down this path. Um, but they decided, of course, that they wanted to make a lot of money, which they've done. Um, and they, so not, you know, and then they also launched a massive misinformation campaign um, about the effects of fossil fuel. And so that's how um, the city of Honolulu is seeking to hold big oil accountable right now is by saying, you know, you misrepresented your product 
um, and and we're we're suffering um, the consequences of that, and um, and so so that's that's kind of what I'm thinking right as I'm watching this train these trains go by, um, and then of course the other thing I'm thinking is what happens when you know somebody that you love is in an ambulance on their way to the hospital and they get stuck waiting for the train. <laughs> waiting for Warren Buffett's toy train going by with all this poison in it. And I think that we really take for granted how our world, the world we live in on a daily basis is designed just to profit uh, a very few people. And it's not designed to, to, you know, contribute to our quality of life. Um, So that's just kind of the big picture. And then I think to bring it a little bit closer to where we are now, like how how this colony, this resource extraction colony we live in uh, has been run of late. There's been, of course, a lack of investment in rural and post-industrial economies. So that's one of the complaints about the Democrats is that they haven't, and, and part of why you see, um, you know, states like Montana or or states like in the Rust Belt um, where they've been failed by this first wave of technology and extraction has moved on. And meanwhile, the, the, the state has done nothing to, to reinvest or to support these communities or help workers transition or anything like that. Um, and I think to, to the note of there being a lack of investment in the public good specifically, um, one thing that I just learned about Billings is that there is a, so there's a parks bond uh, on the ballot this fall to increase funding for uh, the parks here in Billings. Um, and that, that's so that, and that's just so that voters um, in Billings can can vote on whether or not to increase their property taxes uh, to pay for uh, parks. And um, the crazy thing to me is that this is the first time in 24 years <laughs> that a parks bond has been on the ballot in Billings, um, which is a perfect example of austerity and neoliberal politics. And that's coming from the Republicans and the Democrats um, over over the last three decades, right? Is that, that's like, that's the, the, the idea is, you know, we, well, we don't want to increase taxes. We want to increase your taxes. And then you have um, a, a city that is just like starved for public for public investment basically, right? So, and the, and the, and in this case, the question is who benefits from parks or the public good, and that is the working class. And so everyone who has to who has to work full time or more than full time just to survive, um, when they access public services such as the public library, the public school system, public parks, um, this is how we access the quality of life that we deserve as as working as like the working poor, basically. Um, and so, like I said, you know, Montana is poor, poverty is a crime against um, everyone everywhere, um, but it is really relevant for anybody who's engaged in um, working just to just to improve conditions for yourself and your community in Montana. Um, and then of course, the last thing I'll say, I, I, I don't 
have my details down too much, but I will also say that the uh, property taxes, uh, that the effect that the Montana legislature of late, um, the Republican supermajority there and our governor Gianforte um, has had, uh, you know, just a terrible impact on property taxes. And it's really at a, at a situation now where the lowest income people in Montana pay the highest percentage of their income in taxes, uh, which is just, mm -hmm. I, I, that's taking people who are already poor and making them poorer. Meanwhile, commercial taxes are extremely, are like lower than they've been uh, in a long time. Um, and so I really, the reason that I say poverty is a crime is to me, it's a crime because it's intentional. Um, poverty is a policy failure or a policy decision, just like billionaires are a policy failure. That's what I, one thing mm -hmm. I learned from uh, Jane McLevy, you know, mm -hmm. is billionaires are a policy failure. Like they do not have to exist. Uh, the state could regulate them out of, it, it, it could, the state could regulate anybody out of um, becoming a billionaire. And similarly, we could um, set up policy to prevent people from falling into uh, poverty. Um, and the reason that billionaires make so much money is because uh, they steal, like we talked about, they steal the value from literally billions of workers, laborers around the globe. That's how they get so rich. Um, and if our government was actually democratic, uh, we would be able to lay claim to our stolen money and invest it in our communities, our futures, our habitats. Also, like we've been talking about, that's part of what's so exciting about um all the all the strike activity um and lab the labor movement presently so in closing i just want to point out that um conservatives you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps right conservatives think that uh that's all that that poor people need to do that's their opinion on poverty um but that is of course somewhat impossible because we live in a capitalist extractive colony that is literally designed to keep most of us as just worker bees uh, for our entire lives. Um, and so not so so pulling yourself out of poverty is is impossible for most people because most people have to be in poverty because that's like where the workers come from. And then, of course, meanwhile, liberals and, and Democrats uh, tend to talk about uh, poor people like this zoo animal that they haven't figured out how to feed yet. You know, like, what do we what do we have to give this person? And I'm not going to claim that my boyfriend actually came up with that <laughs> metaphor, which I think is perfect. Go um, and so I think, yeah, very well said. Um, and so I think that um, socialists or leftists really have the opportunity <laughs> to frame poverty for what it really is, which is a crime. Um, and it's perpetrated through policy by billionaires uh, in order to force us into onerous jobs, you know, where we never see most of the value of our labor. And and then furthermore, we receive no public investment uh, in the quality of our lives. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. One, one quick yeah. thing. If anyone would try to actually pull themselves up by their bootstraps, it's impossible. You fall down at best. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, even the phrase itself doesn't make any sense, right? So anyway. Well, Sue, truly you're, that's you're, saying you're, that there hasn't been, I'm sorry, did I? No, no, something? go ahead, go ahead. <clears throat> oh, I was just gonna say that, that 
it's it's really deceiving to think, well, there's that whole point of view that they're not really pulling themselves by their bootstraps. I mean, they, they have been supported in many ways to be in the position they're at as mm-hmm. far as, okay, you got your roads so that your company can go wherever. You got your, you know, your TV isn't everywhere, so you have people who can work you know, safely, uh, you know, you're managing COVID, you've got, you know, electricity that comes at the flip of the switch. I mean, you've got all this stuff, the schools have been supporting you and your workers, blah, blah, blah. And to say nothing of who your parents were and all this stuff. I mean, it's just, I, there's that to consider too, that we've supported, I'm the same as, it's the same thing like for the pharmaceutical companies saying that, oh my goodness, we're, we have to do research, you know, because blah, blah, blah. Well, the research has been done by us, the people, and then you go off and make your profits. Was so that bootstrapping? I don't think so. <laughs> you, you know, you deserve your profits after we do the research. It, you know, it's just nothing that makes sense. And, and Sandy, that was really enlightening and really, um, and what you say about um, carrying Narcan and, and how disruptive it is. I mean, the whole war on drugs and so forth. And the role of of really um, addictive substances in a, in our country. I mean, it's always been the case that um, to undermine a class, that one of the things you do is you get them addicted, and then you have people fighting each other rather than, or even gangs fighting each other rather than um, mm-hmm. focusing on who's really how the how their community problems actually come about. I live in Chicago, just so you know. Yeah. Well, to Pardon? that to that point, um, and I forget the author's name, but he was writing a book on the drug war, right? And yeah. um, he happened to interview one of uh, President Richard Nixon's closest aides who was involved in the Watergate scandal and served time in, in prison, John Ehrlichman. And um oh, yeah. And he and Ehrlichman was like a very close aide to Nixon. And that's when the war on drugs actually started is in the Nixon administration. And the author kept asking him about, well, you know, you did this because there was a lot of drug abuse. People were dying, you know, and he, he and Ehrlichman just interrupts him and says, don't you get it? We created the war on drugs to go after our two main political enemies. One was the Black Liberation Movement, because in the 60s, civil rights movement kind of morphed into more Black liberation, and therefore we criminalized cocaine. Um, And second was the peace movement, the anti-war movement in Vietnam. And so we criminalized, we criminalized, in fact, it made marijuana a class one drug right up there with heroin, right? And which is scientifically totally unsupported. But he said it, the war on drugs was completely a political way to put uh, our political opponents in prison. Mm. And end mm-hmm. of story. Mm-hmm. And and I think that it makes a lot more sense, right? I mean, there's a lot of blather about you know, you know, uh, the the war, you know, like in anything, you know, you, you can you could look at the war in Ukraine, you can look at uh you know the, the 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 case that the oligarchs are really running the show and we don't have a democracy i mean there's all these sorts of things that um 
you know, they fall back on and it works with American people. And that's why this show even exists is this, uh, you know, they, they run a PR campaign. They tell outrageous lies uh, and uh, and expect, you know, and American people generally, maybe less so now than before, but certainly when I was growing up, and maybe Sue, you too, that, yeah, this this whole thing about, you know, the anti-communism was always a thing to scare people with, which, in fact, was not any, not as much of a threat as people might uh, really come to realize, uh, and that, uh, and in fact, you know, there's plenty of things good about that. I mean, both the uh, Soviet Union and currently China have brought more people out of poverty. Uh, in you know, you're talking about uh, hundreds of thousands or uh, hundreds of millions, if not a billion people. Both countries, both those systems combined, whether you agree with their methods or not, they did bring massive amount of people out of poverty. And um, uh, so, uh, you know, and you can't have people thinking, oh, well, maybe, you know, we got poverty in this country. Maybe we ought to try something like that. Oh, no, because that would cut into the profits of the oligarchs. Right. So we get this whole campaign to tell us how bad socialism is, how bad communism is, how bad the Russians are, how bad China is, whatever. Right. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, uh, uh, the uh, one, I, I, I quote them quite a bit, but there's a blog called Naked Capitalism, which I recommend to everybody to read. Um, and uh, one, one of the authors in Naked Capitalism calls it the mighty Wurlitzer of U.S. propaganda, right? And they, <laughs> and whenever, whenever there's a threat like Nicaragua or Venezuela or Cuba, or you name it. I mean, right now it's like everybody's a threat to the United States, right? So they're uh, they're looking pretty ragged in their propaganda campaign against most, you know, most everybody else in the world. Um, but they use that because we we're suckers for that, and it diverts us from looking at the situation clearly, and then saying, "Yeah, what we got now isn't so great." And I would conclude my little bit by saying that, um, you know, talking about um, people overdosing, people self-medicating, um, Montana, we we have, uh, it, it was, we don't have a mental health uh, system worth, um, it, it, that's falling apart, right, very directly. I experienced that directly myself. Um, and with the, with the closure of Sunburst uh, center in, in Kalispell. Um, and we don't have, uh, uh, and we have a kind of neoliberal hell where we keep being told this is the American dream, or this is the best thing in the world, right? We have the best. And, and so when people suffer from poverty or people suffer from lack of mental health, uh, services, or people just go, you know, think experience this country as a as a hellhole okay I'll, I'll i'll keep it so we're not censored but a hellhole uh but you but we're being told that it's not um that creates you know 
that that creates a, a huge difficulty for people in dealing with the reality in front of us. And, you know, uh, if drugs are available, then people use them. Right. And, and to, to try to take care of that contradiction, that, that massive sort of per, uh, contradiction of perception and inevitably people are going to um, overdose and people are going to become addicted and, People aren't going to solve their problems because drugs don't solve your problem that way, right? It's uh, what we need to do is make poverty illegal, right? Um, and we need to make billionaires illegal, right? Uh, those sorts of things would bring us a lot closer to um, dealing with our suicide problem, dealing with our drug problem, uh, because really uh, it's these are deaths of despair. And people in this country are in various degrees of despair. And, um, and that's not something, that's not a hallmark of a successful system, right? It's not, it's not something that you can brag about and it just gets swept under the rug um, instead of taking on these really more difficult kinds of changes. I found yeah. it. You want to sign a petition? <laughs> yeah. It's demanding a moratorium on sweeps. You get the news? Good long letter. Here, I got it. Mm -hmm. I believe you're nasty. <laughs> she didn't say seven it's on days. the other side. It could be tomorrow. Or yeah, that or these are just it's the same thing. But and I tried clarification and asked her to get back to me. With her. You you explained some, but uh, there was supposed to be a sweep here today, and then yeah, you yeah, met, you met with public uh, parks department folks. Eight tents down in the bottom. There's four now against fence. Used to be six. There's a whole group of five uh, native family that were living at the bottom street and all these ladies. Um, they all left. I mean, how the city has the right to tell these Native American adults that they can't be in the river bottom or near their water rights is above and beyond me. Um, but... Uh, yeah, there's another three to four tents below on that side, and then it was ambiguous whether or not they were going to address the island out there. That's the thing, is it is uh, ambiguous. From start to finish, how the sleep will be derived. I mean, for one of the first ones, they told us, you know, we're going to come out ready and, like, armed, and we're hoping not to have to use it, is basically what they told us. And, I mean, I told them at that time that we didn't have any intention to stay. That was the Russell, the first time I dealt with one. Um, and we didn't have any intention to stay. My intention was to get everybody down to just a backpack and sit there waiting until they told us we had to leave and to march right upstairs and sit down on the Russell and close it. That was my intention. It was definitely what I tried to push as a purvey. I couldn't pull it off. I, I didn't have the the community. I had the community backing. I didn't have the community without fear, without fear of warrant, and without, you know, there aren't as many activists as many other communities that I've lived in. Many in Hyde's and I didn't really know each other as well at that point. We had just met, you know, and, uh, the, yeah, I didn't know activists in the community besides, like, David Heather, you know. And, uh... <laughs> I thought it was yeah, I figured if we had to sit up top 
for a couple minutes that they would shortly tell us that we had to leave there too and that we should march from there to the courthouse and set up the kitchen and start again right there in front of God and everybody where we had a camera to protect us. And I wish I had done that. I really do. In hindsight, I wish that I had had a camera on me for the last couple of months because it would be helpful. Have a great day, many hands. Um, it would be helpful. I have uh, lost a lot in just every time I leave my space, it's open to theft because I can't camp in unison with anybody anymore without it being a big camp and being targeted. I can't put anybody in jeopardy by letting them camp, you know, by asking them to camp with me. If somebody wants to camp with me, then they're savvy. They know what's going on. But, you know, asking someone to camp with me is like putting a thumb on them, and that's just not fair at this point, you know. Um, Chantel holds space with me, and that's much appreciated, especially, you know. Uh, Yeah, she's just one of those people that is always in my camp whenever she's around, you know, and then she's up on the res, and she's, you know back and forth with the same fella and so you know it's uh it's something i hold space for just exactly like the other three people that i had spoken about that uh that uh had stayed with me in that month you know holding spaces uh safe space good, yeah safe space and somewhere that you know someone can be and not have to worry about it and the fact of the matter is at every camp that i've been at i'm one of the last people out all the detrius is there when I was a kid, my house burned three times by the time I was in sixth grade. I have a hard time with stuff. And so when I see really good things being thrown out because somebody doesn't have the time or inclination or the city was too flamboyant in telling them that they shouldn't take anything and just leave it all for the dumpster, then I end up collecting a lot of seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths and being happy. Is that too much? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and uh, being happy to distribute it around and, and see it get used, you know? And uh, and so, yeah, having a space where a couple attempts can pop, if I can get safe there with the city long enough to keep them, then, you know, it's better for me to have guests and have someone else there when I do have to leave, if possible, occasionally, than it is not, you know? And it's nice to live in unison with people and have community and have company and not be sitting there stir crazy in the bushes wondering when somebody's coming to run you off (laughs) well and and now you uh there's a uh, a new group there is uh the i want to call it the unhoused neighbors union um but it's the unified neighbors union i do believe and uh it's associated with the tenants union you know so it's uh coupled with the the house community's uh renters and uh you know, it gives us some legal standing as a body as, as opposed to a person. A person is really easy to blow off in court, and most people are not legally, semantically savvy, and court can be a real hurdle, you know. And so this is going to be helpful, I believe. In fact, last night was the first time paper from the union hit the city, and today we had no sweep. So, I mean... You can't say two is two, but you sure can say we hope it helped, and we hope it helps in the future, that's for sure. And then there's two other bodies that I'm going to look into furthering, and one is a uh, 
an unhoused political party so that it could go town to town, country to country, you know, state to state, and you have a voice in politics then. I mean, who cares if you win the seat or, you know, I mean, if you have a good person who has good charisma and good personal marketing and has been a good person in the community for a long time and shown themselves, maybe they'll win a space. You know, maybe you start in smaller spaces and you show good faith and you do a good job and other people get in on the name of that party, but at least it puts your voice in there. I mean, that's Hunter, you know, mm-hmm. Woody Creek <laughs> running against the stinking sheriff and that's, you know, because I'm such a fan, my legacy as well, I took it on in Bellingham and ran against a dirty sheriff, in my opinion. And uh, it's the way to do it. You know, in, Cher- in Bellingham, it didn't cost a thing. This year, I would have been running for mayor. I would have been a homeless man running, uh, for semantic purposes, camp pain. <laughs> and if you use a 10 by 10 tent and I use a four-man tent, argue the difference with me. Go ahead. <laughs> Let's take this one to the podium and let me make you look like a fool. Because my tent is smaller than your tent and more economical and I can stay here 24 hours a day in it and campaign. And my signs are up and every one of these tents behind me with a sign is campaigning too. And you can leave us alone. And that was a solid idea. And I tried to sell it. I was beyond dead broke. I was in debt at the time that I became aware of it and to do it without any money you would have to collect 5% of the votes of the last winning mayor uh, officer right. of that of that spot right which honestly shouldn't have been an issue right because uh, Hess didn't have any votes so I mean, I don't know why I had to have any votes at all, or any any uh, signatures at all. But I did yeah. get turned down at the at the box. Now I've been told that uh, uh, Kula for Missoula guy found a way to circumvent that. And if that's the case, oh. I'm bummed because I could have had my name in, you know, at least as a write-in. Apparently, in our system, we don't even collect the write-in votes unless you're registered. So even if people write you in, you don't get to find out. That's kind of bogus. Um, I recently heard of this uh, afternoon uh, of this ranking voting. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, and that. Choice me, voting. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic idea. Um, so anyway, I, I I believe in the idea of a political party. I think it gives that voice without anybody having to run, you know, you put one person in a year and, you know, keep the party going until it catches a little bit of fire, and I think when other towns with good afternoon, with uh, active politics, and especially active politics that affect the unhoused are going on, people will appreciate and be able to employ the idea for themselves, for sure. Um, And then uh, on the tales of a conversation from open aid alliance where we uh, it's a needle, needle exchange and community uh, building program in town that just got a community building grant we did a overdose prevention awareness dinner and i was this turned out to be the sole facilitator because there were so few attendees that didn't just take the uh 25 dollar gift card eat dinner and leave um way to go johnny um but uh <laughs> 
I uh, ended up being the facil- facilitator and did it over there. And one of our conversations... Oh, am I allowed to do this? Yeah, no details. And I was the one that came up with the idea. I think it's fun. Um, that a fraternal order would be a great loophole for a autonomous zone, safe injection usage space, unless you have a complaint from the public who hasn't seen in here, or you have some warrant of measure, this is a fraternal order. It's a private club, and just like your Moose Lodge, if you close the door to me, I'm not allowed in. And that's why there's two doors. You know, and uh, <laughs> you have a nice day and come back with a warrant. Sir. And uh, I think that that is a poignant idea on how to provide something that the city wants nothing to do with, take it completely out of their control, and once again create something for the community that solves a problem and show your local government how to do it. If they don't know how to do it and they won't listen, then do it yourself and show, you know, and that's what my whole winter has been, food kitcheting and whatnot, is, you know, hey, two cookies and half glass of milk ain't breakfast. Let me show you, you know, and yeah, I mean, we cooked so much bacon off of a barbecue with pallets. This one, how much bacon do you think we cooked this one? I don't either. <laughs> it was so much. I mean, they were giving away 40-pound boxes of bacon from Dailies, which yeah. is solid local totally. uh, yeah. you know, product. And, yeah, I mean, the bacon grease was everything that I used to cook all you know, our dishes, you know, to, you know, to lose the pans and everything. And, I mean, you needed to be warm. So there had to be a fire going all the time anyway, just to be warm enough to be out there January 15th. And so my, at that point, seven of the windows on my Subaru had been busted out from protesting some sexual harassment by a lead night supervisor at the Johnson, who's currently being trained to go back into work. Um, never been reprimanded. It's been brought up to the mayor in a one-on-one meeting where he said, that's a big deal. Not so much as an email about it. And this guy (laughs) was heady enough to tell me that I couldn't wear, I think I brought it, a bra. (laughs) Couldn't wear a bra over my full clothes, not exposing anything. Where's those pancakes at? I'll show you my pancakes, baby. Woo-hoo! So he tells me that I'm going out into a 20 degree cold for three days if I don't take the bra off immediately. And I explained that I didn't think that was legal or constitutional, and he told me he didn't give them. And uh, not in those words, but he was not understanding or compassionate about the issue at all. He told me that there wasn't another woman in the room wearing their bra that way. I pointed out to him (laughs) if he hadn't noticed that I wasn't a woman. And that I was from the Madonna generation, and that the bra was for style, not support. <laughs> and that he could kiss my ass. And I took the bra off because I didn't really want to go outside. And then the next day, I talked to Emily Armstrong, who kind of just cock-blocked me at the mayor's office in community planning and wouldn't let me get up the chain at all. Because when I spoke to the mayor this September 8th, that February complaint that I had made to his office had never come across his desk ever. 
things. We'd like to talk to you in a second. Absolutely. And uh, okay. so I went in then, talked to her, or I called her on the phone, talked to her. She said that absolutely it was unconstitutional, absolutely it was illegal, but that the Johnson was a private entity, even though government funded, and they could write, good afternoon, how y'all doing today? They could write the rules however they wanted. And I said, so they can be preferentially, homophobically, sexually harassive from a dude just out of halfway house, right out of jail, with bars under his eyes, blanking out what he's embarrassed that he used to wear, taking care of 18-year-old men and women on the floor. This is what we want. And, uh, yeah, she told me she couldn't do anything about it. And at that point in time, I realized that this was gross. There was no list of rules on the wall at all. You couldn't tell what you were going to get in trouble for. And I went outside with a medley of six or seven signs, one of which said, homophobic rednecks suck. That one, I'm sure, got my windows taken out. I might have to take a break here for a second and uh, hit yeah, the restroom yeah. if that's okay. But yeah, I don't no, mind uh, no whatever problem. you want. What, what are some of the irons in the fire right now to stop the sweeps? I mean, that's just the minimum, right? I mean, there's a yeah. lot more issues um, involved, right? There needs to be public response. <laughs> Even if it's from us talking about each other, hey, this person in the camp did this and it was fantastic. They blah blah blah, or this person did this for me. Blah blah blah. Um, homeowners uh, who, hey, we've had these two people in front of our house for a month. We don't have a lot of negative traffic. We haven't had anything stolen. You know, blah, blah, you know, anything like this. Will is up on the back uh, fence of uh, the kayak spot by Free Cycle. They consider him like late night security, you know, and he's an old dude. He sits around up at night listening to rock and roll. Nobody comes around. I, um, I, I might add, like, this this camp right down here looks perfectly neat and orderly. And It's a good thing that that tent's the first one that you see. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, know there, I know there's others. But, uh, but, but I, I did notice earlier this morning when I was walking through that... Uh, there's uh, camps were in a lot better shape. At, at the time that the signs went up, there were a lot of things struck out or up on the fence, and there had been like up to four tents where there are now two, I think. And mm-hmm. you know, it was growing, and that's one of the things that they gave us as a parameter at the spring was that your camp can't grow too quickly. And I don't know how that isn't completely ambiguous, but <laughs> anybody hear the news? No sweeps this week. No sweeps wow. this week. Blaine had told us that. That's great oh, news. Great. <laughs> yeah, it got shut down here. I don't know. We delivered a neighbor's union letter last night. I did to awesome. the city attorney. And we had people here to witness and protest. I was not going to move this tent and make awesome. them cite me so that we had something to go to court with. And I guess they decided that we weren't going to. Love that. Uh, there's still breakfast if anybody wants any snacks or anything. Appreciate that, my man. We're just trying to make sure everyone's healthy, wealthy, yeah. and yes. as well as we can. <laughs> and wise. Yes, and yeah. wise. Exactly. Do you guys know Mark? I don't think so. Public Radio. This is Rachel. Chaz. Pleasure to meet you. Chaz. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. Yeah. Roving, healthy. Okay. All right. We're the camps. We just started opening up Blue Heron over there, so we'll be moving 30 folks off the street into permanent supportive housing, but still doing our outreach and stuff to make sure everyone's got access to health care without being expected to come in for it. Yeah. Um, other irons in the fire. Uh, yeah. Getting there's a 
pop-up negative complaint about homelessness and camping in city limits on the city's sites. So it leads you through, it only gives you so many choices of the complaints you can make. It avoids you saying camping in city limits because that would be illegal to complain about, you know what I mean? That's, and this is online. This is online, yeah. so people just go on, they can be anonymous, they can make a hundred of them a day, you can have no idea where the complaints are coming from. It can be someone vindictive to you, blah, blah, blah. There is no positive complaint form or positive feedback form. There is no bad sweep form. There is no, you know, harassing cop form. There is no, it's, (laughs) is what it is. It's a bad part of the system. It's meant to serve one purpose and it's working. Grievance form. So a grievance form, any kind of call in, speaking to your representatives, but calling the police department and making positive remarks. Uh, what my thought was to go on the complaint form and put in positive remarks because you can freedom of information all the complaint forms. Well, there's no. It's not the way that the form feeds you. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, like and, yeah. And and I notice, you know, I've been I've been coming down here for a while yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, there's uh, obviously a sense of community people know each other people give each other stuff I mean it's not like you know I think lots of people have this idea uh, a wrong idea and uh, maybe and there's always bad apples right there's bad apples in every corporate CEOs right yeah. I mean I every think, family has bad apples you know we I had a lady <laughs> at, open, at a free cycle the other night yelling at us you know, and I get stolen from at my house I said ma'am I get stolen from every day yeah and quite often like every two weeks or so the city comes and tries to steal all my stuff and you know like I, I empathize with you alright buddy I'll come down and say hello for sure um, but I don't know what to do, but emphasize. What are you up to? Are you waiting for me? Sure, no. Okay, really. cool. I don't mind at all. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't blowing you off. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I do empathize with these people, and that is what a part of what makes me, A, want to see both sides and try and help the middle. I mean, I stood up to the Franklin School and spoke only because Gwen Nichols, who has all the balls of a lumberjack for sure Mm -hmm. got up got the mic herself as a city council elect and walked it across the entire gymnasium and handed it to me because no one from the unhoused community was getting a word in edgewise we were listening to that neighborhood bitch and I mean bitch like it was the Frankenstein Mm -hmm. uh, group going out to slay the dragon I mean it was bad and I stood up and I said my piece and I apologized for what happened to the Johnson the year before. I lived there. I tried. Blah, blah, blah. This is how I feel. This is where the Johnson's failing. This is the way these people get driven into your community every day. And it's gross. And, I mean, I had people who were vehemently using the mic and talking about me in generalization mm-hmm. come up to me after the meeting and thank me for what I had to say and have long conversations with me. And that is the point. The generalization is your lie every time. Every time mm-hmm. you say all of them mm-hmm. is like me saying all of you. It's NIMBY from our side, NIMBY from your side. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want me in your backyard. I don't want you in my park because you don't own that. That's not your backyard. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's dumb. That's what I don't want to see. Mm-hmm. I don't have that feeling at all. This isn't my space. It's our space. Every time somebody from the public goes by, mm-hmm. I say hello. I offer them food if we're having food. I introduce myself. I do my best to remember you and your dog 
and say something. You know, there's <laughs> mothers that come by in the middle of the afternoon and chat. We had stones because I collect gem and mineral. And we had stones out last year at Rail Link Pavilion because kids would come out in the winter and there's really not that much to do on the plan. There'd be stones out for the kids to take one each and introduce myself to every one of the parents that was willing that went by to have that conversation, to have somebody that... What we're trying to do now is a liaison informal group from each camp and from each shelter have a couple of people that are liaisoning to the community willing to give out their you know their number and information and come help mediate a situation before an officer needs to be called you know the the complaints in city council about fire department calls and police calls and the cost of them and it being aimed at our community when they say it is preventable by allowing us to pick up some of our own slack Right. and address that community and offer mediation. That, I mean, That's very sensible. In fact, it's like it's the only way that it's actually going to work, yeah. right? Because when the cops come out... When I mean, you realize that, that a good that camper is neighborhood watch, you know what I mean? Yeah. And people start giving up the front left corner of their yard in unison and, and uh, you know, backing an issue like this, that might sound crazy it might even sound crazier in montana but this is what did uh jim was here earlier called it mazula la um <laughs> which i thought was fantastic yeah. that old guy is 84 and he's like my mazula is my girlfriend she's mazula la <laughs> i thought that was fantastic i, I think we should start the mazula la club <laughs> it could be the fraternal order I, um, I i worked for him like 40 years ago oh no by way. the way yeah he didn't remember me but I oh remember really him, well yeah. he is 84 yeah you know yeah, by yeah. the time i'm 84 i plan on not remembering a lot of it you know <laughs> right, like just right. pulling the highlights <laughs> if i'm lucky you know that would be nice well um, well and and that is also a smart idea because councilwoman uh jordan has got this proposal right, right. i'm working with her on that yeah. and uh with with uh, kevin uh hunt a little bit yeah. and uh trying to reword it to make it a little more we all have our opinions i, I Kristen was a saint in my opinion to float something so that we could at least amend it and try and go forward. It sounds like amending it might be a lot more difficult than I realize because I don't understand the Masons and whatnot rules. Mason rules, yeah. Yeah, that uh, the, the council is, is governed by, but uh, whatever we have to do, it's on the table. And in my opinion, moving people every two months is a little too much to ask. I, uh, I floated the idea that like a four-pallet-wide frame... Uh, made of pallets and you know inex- inexpensive uh, on a uh, tow package you know like a single axle that we could retrieve the axle's got two uh, junkyards hmm. why not just start cutting axles and making tow trailers that the entire 4 by 4 pallet that you might picket fence it you might just have a tent on it you might have a hammock sling for all I know it's yours and when it's time to move whether it's 2 months 3 months 6 months Three to six seems much more fair. Six is, you know, every half a year is not so bad. Like, I don't see any reason to have two camps running. I see four. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, mm-hmm. everybody except for wards two and six because they already have shelters. Right. And that's fair. Right. They've been towing the line much longer than anybody else. Put in four shelters. It puts in people in different places around the city. Easier to get to works. Make them different camps. Make a work camp. 
yeah. we all go to bed or have a night shift and sit up during the day and watch the game, you know, and we in unison watch the place for each other because it's impossible to go to work for eight hours a day and not get fleeced. Yeah. You know, you have to live in unison. And right now, living in unison is the end of your camp. Yeah. You know, breaking us up and being solo so that there's no one else there to complain or stick yeah. up for you or change it is the perfect. It's, yeah. It, it, the, and this, bigger this, camps are more visible and harder to control. And, you know, yeah. Right. I mean, a 35-person camp, if we're doing this as a pilot project, like, let's make it work. Let's have 10 and 15-person camps. Let's have 20 to 25 at most if we have a big area. Like, the areas that we get are all going to be different. They're not uniform. We're not buying anything. We're not cutting out pieces of the park so far. I mean, right now, the, the most accepted idea is for us to go out and find private homeowners that might be willing to take on infrastructure or private business owner whatever take on infrastructure let us put in water put in sewage put in things for ourselves that we can use you know what i mean and give you the benefit of infrastructure maybe a percentage of market value rental from the city and put that towards the development that you can't afford to do right now anyway you know and Mm -hmm. let this pilot project fly like that's mm-hmm. the best chance we have because mm-hmm. then if the city changes their mind but the property owner didn't you can't break it down right you know and if it's a lease then you've got the legal standing with the property owner as well and you're in much better standing for the long term considering the history on camps like acs where you got three years build what you want and then in come the dozers right right well um Councillor Jordan's idea uh, depends a lot on uh, having some self-regulation, right? It does. In, in, and how? And that can be there's that can be a difficult thing to organize. No how, how, issue, how is that? How's that happening? There's been no issue getting an eight, I would say, to ten-person team together instantly. Okay. Um, the biggest issue is that probably 50-50 in that grouping we all want to live together mm. because oh, we that. are the responsible people that we know and, and if it grouped off you're like well these are the people I'd want to live with mm-hmm. now they're all running other camps you know or you're tag teamed with one other person which is definitively if not two to three people running a camp so that there's never a singular decision there's no room for that kind of error Mm -hmm. there's no room for it to get heady when this is the first time you've been able to do this blah 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 um yeah there has been recent history of people trying to put their foot down in their camp being burned right out of it yeah and i don't mean yeah in any way but literally burned right out of it I, I was I was just reading about. I mean, there's this whole sense that when, when I go to the city council meetings, they don't. There's no sense that there's any capacity of self-government, right? No, no capacity whatsoever. It's like, oh no, you, we got to have, we got to pay a city staffer, right, to to look over these camps or what, you know, what, whatever. But but also it's like, yeah, ordinary people can't take care of themselves, right? So we, we need we need And this. ordinary people in emergency crisis can act freakishly. They can be over the top. You know, Absolutely. That, yeah, windows get broken out. Things get looted. That, you know, things happen. But I mean... But not generally. Not generally. Anyway. Not, not most people. It sounds like in that situation, you know, community was building. And, you know, I'm a testament to that. I, I didn't know 
but maybe four people in this entire community as of mid-December. Mm-hmm. And I showed up, I got my nose out of whack. My first thought was, man, if you're going to try and treat me this way, what are you going to do to some of these people who might be incapacitated and right. just not able to take care? I mean, yep. this is fucking gross. Yeah, among other reasons, the Johnson is uh, a please do your drugs discreetly out of sight in the bathroom, so much so that if somebody else doesn't smoke, they won't want to go in there. And then sit in your cot or anywhere else on the space. Don't really go in and out very much. I mean, if you do, great, but we don't want to hear about any problems you made. And uh, sign in the morning, sign in for your shower, and sign in for food so we get paid. And that's the purvey. I mean, there's no NA, there's no AA, there's no Job Corps, there's no GED, there's no programs. There was a wrestling mat there the entire winter, and they wouldn't let me roll it out and teach yoga. Here. Yeah. Well, last, last word, any okay. last words? Yeah. Uh, you, you, you got, we got people lined up here to talk to you. <laughs> three cheers to unified uh, protest because today worked. And, you know, congratulations to, uh, yeah, the people in this community that are actually working for it because... This was enough to keep me from going back to an apartment in Seattle. Mm -hmm. I was offended. I've seen the precursors of Seattle streets here mm -hmm. this year for the first time. And I like this town. And I didn't really want it to be that. So I stuck around to try and make a difference. And it feels like, you know, besides the day-to-day -day difference that you see feeding food, which has been good. Mm -hmm. You know, that this is, uh, this is traction. Mm -hmm. You know, you realize that something's happening and that it's got clout. And that's something. Yeah. Hey, Mark, thank Great. you for taking the time. Good work, man. That's what, that's what organizers tell each other. Good, Good work. work, man. <laughs> you know, somebody's got to tell us. So, as is our theme here, we promote the cause of strong democratic unions. Besides the Missoula Starbucks United Workers, there are efforts to do more union organizing in western Montana among the service industry and other industries as well. Yeah, that's right, Sue. Um, there are four more worksite organizing drives happening here in Missoula this month with support from the Western Montana Workers Alliance. The Workers Alliance is doing several things. Uh, uh, one is sponsoring an introductory workshop on being a union steward on Thursday, October 5th at 6 p.m. And Sandy, you had something to add to that. Oh, yeah. The um, other thing I wanted to say is that if you're interested in Starbucks um, workers organizing, we will be um, planning solidarity actions um, through our Western Montana DSA chapter. So um, you can email us, check out our website or attend our next um, meeting uh, or also email the Western Montana Workers Alliance to find out more about our solidarity actions supporting uh, Starbucks workers. Right. And you can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance, which is a project of Western Montana DSA, um, at uh, westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-N-M-T-W-A at gmail.com, or by leaving a message at 406 924 3830. That's 406 924 3830.
Well, thanks, Sue and Sandy, for a great show. It was a great discussion. Um, really appreciate you coming on. Um, and thank thanks. you. Oh, good. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Just go to our website at www.1015kfgm.org and you can make it there. Most everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thank you. Please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%.